Because if you have a fairly straightforward resuscitation and the outcome is the same, so the patient becomes intubated at the end, let's say, let's say your endpoint is intubation. If it was an easy intubation, then both the fairly junior person and the, and the expert person will both have checked that box. You know, patient intubated, first pass, great. Um, but if you actually interview and try to get into the, into the thinking process behind that expert and that novice, you may, may see something different. You may see that the novice thought about the plan, successfully went through the plan, intubated the patient, great, but there wasn't a lot of deeper thinking un underneath that, right? So maybe the expert thought of that exact same plan, but had a plan B and a plan C ready for when plan A fails, because plan A, though it's gonna work 95% of the time, you know, for the 5% of the time that it's not going to work, I don't want to be thinking of my plan B at that point. I want to have already thought of what plan B is going to be. Hi folks, I'm Dan Dworkis and this is The Emergency Mind, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Our guest this episode is Dr. Adam Shlevsky, an emergency doctor and an associate professor of emergency medicine at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Dr. Shlevsky is the program director of the Fellowship in Resuscitation and Reanimation Medicine, and as will become abundantly clear in this episode, an absolute expert on cognitive load theory. In this conversation, we talk a lot about decision-making in high-stress situations. We talk about what it means to be an expert and how one measures expertise, and we dig into a really fundamental understanding of cognitive load theory, which helps us understand how we can best learn complicated tasks and then subsequently perform them in high-stress situations. Before we jump into the episode, a reminder if you're not already to consider signing up for our Emergency Mind newsletter. It's free, it's awesome, it's called Knowledge Under Pressure, and it does a deep dive into a lot of the topics we cover on these podcasts, as well as collating resources on human performance under pressure from a wide variety of other sources. You can find it at emergencymind.com slash signup. Okay, all that said, let's jump into it. I hope you enjoy. Adam, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I've been really looking forward to talking with you. Your, your work sounds incredibly interesting, and I'm just really looking forward to digging in. Well, that's great, Dan. Thanks so much for having me. It's always exciting to, to chat about the stuff that I'm interested in, so uh, I'm glad that you invited me on. I appreciate it. Yeah. So to start things off, can you, can you give everybody like a two-line like two or whatever it is, elevator pitch about yourself? Like, who are you? What do you do? And and how did you come to start thinking about emergencies? Yeah, so I am uh, I, I'm an emergency physician. That's how I, I kind of think of myself primarily. Um, but I'm really lucky in the sense that I get to wear a bunch of different hats at work. Uh, so there's my clinical role as an emergency physician. Uh, I also uh, have the opportunity to do some work on our trauma team, where I'm a trauma team leader, uh, and on our race team. Uh, the race team uh, at our hospital is essentially a critical care response team. Um, that other places may have. Um, and uh, so that's, that's kind of my, my clinical work and really enjoy all aspects of the clinical work. I also um, uh, run a uh, fellowship program in resuscitation and reanimation medicine, uh, which is a great, uh, a great program uh, for me anyway, selfishly, because I get to, uh, uh, to interact with and be challenged by a whole bunch of really bright uh, young physicians um, who are interested in the same kind of work that I'm interested in. Um, so that's kind of my, the second thing I do. And then I uh, carry a, a research portfolio as well, where I, myself and a, a bunch of us are interested in uh, applying cognitive load theory uh, to the practice of medicine, some simulation education research as well. 
Um, yeah, that's pretty much me. What an incredible like package of different of different pieces to put together into into this you know sort of melting pot of of performance under pressure and and providing medical care where it's needed the most. Um, you know, I was actually going to start with cognitive load theory, but you said something quite interesting. Tell me more about this race team. Oh yeah, so our race team uh, is uh, is uh, is a team of primarily uh, critical care physicians and emergency physicians uh, who uh, work in the hospital, uh, uh, responding to inpatient codes in inpatient emergencies. Uh, so you can imagine if you have, let's say, a urology patient on the ward uh, who's being treated for you know, his prostate issues, but happens to also have uh, acute pulmonary edema at five o'clock in the morning. Um, certainly the urology team would be involved uh, in helping that patient, but the race team would also become involved as well uh, to provide support and education uh, to, to the house staff um, and to the service. So we would, we would come in, we come in as a group of three. So there's the physician who is on the race team, the uh, race nurse, as well as the race respiratory therapist who attend all calls. And uh, yeah, we try to uh, stabilize, resuscitate, uh, and, and provide some education as well. And then a lot of our job is also logistics in trying to find the best place for the patient. So can the patient stay where he or she is? Uh, do they need to be moved to the step-down unit or to the, uh, to the ICU? Um, yeah, and that's kind of the service that, that we provide and that we add in uh, medical emergencies for inpatients. And who, when you, so when you respond to that situation, um, do you immediately take charge of the patient? Are you there as an advisor, an advisor capacity, or how does that dynamic work in terms of who actually runs the show? So it de it depends on the acuity of the patient. So our role primarily is to to support the service, right? Because the service at the end of the day, they're the most responsible physician for that patient. Um, but generally speaking, um, you know, we 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 work a lot with the residents uh, in our academic center, who are the first responders to those uh, to those types of cases. Um, and if everything is going reasonably smoothly, we, we stand in the back, we're kind of that sixth person in the room, um, just providing advice over the shoulder of the resident, supporting him or her and making the decisions that need to be made. And then a lot of my work in those kind of non-acute, the non-acute acute cases uh, are, are the behind the scenes logistics. And so I've got uh, the, uh, the operations manager's phone number tattooed on my palm here so I can <laughs> you know, ensure that uh, beds are moving, beds are being cleaned so patients can be moved as necessary. Uh, and I do some of the behind the scenes work there when things are going well. Of course, when things are kind of falling off the rails or if, um, if uh, more support is needed, uh, then I'll insert myself to varying degrees. Um, and it's interesting because of course you may have to, as, as, a, as a physician in that uh, position, you have to make a quick judgment about, um, about how trustworthy the uh, house staff is who's taking care of the patient. Of course, everyone is generally speaking, excellent in doing their best, but sometimes people become cognitively overloaded, and we'll talk about that term, I'm sure, later on. Uh, and our role is to try to help to support that person and then hopefully provide them with a good learning experience in the end because there's always a number of things to debrief about um, and things that can be learned from a situation like that. Hmm. And do you all train together as the race team? Like, do you run drills separate from different areas or, or is it just more of like each of you has your own expertise and you come together to work on it? I think it's a bit of both, uh, actually. Uh, so we all have our own expertise. So there are, of course, the critical care docs, the eMERGE docs, uh, who have a, a slightly different approach to things. Um, our, our nurses are 
kind of the same throughout, of course, mm -hmm. uh, but we do train together. Um, and so in particular, uh, you know, given, you know, the current global pandemic, we've done a number of training sessions sure. uh, in, to, uh, to figure out exactly how, uh, you know, we're going to perform airway management for these sick patients and, um, and approaches that way. We also have uh, mock code blues uh, that are called overhead once a month. Our resuscitation fellows, in particular, are the ones who run those, uh, but for mock code blues in the hospital, we have the race team arrive and again, help support uh, the resident who's carrying the code blue pager at the time. And so we do simulate, uh, well, essentially it's in situ simulation that we do um, for, for those types of events as well. So it strikes me that something we've talked a lot about over the course of the podcast um, is the difference between a well-established, well-put-together team that trains together, lives together, and sort of drives together. And you can think about that model as um, something we were talking about recently, the, the book Turn the Ship Around by David Marquette, who was the commander of a U.S. nuclear submarine and lived and worked with the same group for approximately nine months to sort of change the culture of the organization. On the other end of the spectrum, you have what you call a flash team, an X team, or a swarm team right, where people come together ad hoc for a particular reason. They maybe don't know each other. They each have different training sets and skills, and they come together to perform a certain function and then dissipate usually afterwards. And that's something that's more of like what the Mission Critical Teams Institute talks about. And that's a lot of the way that we run a Code Blue model in most of the hospitals that I work at. So maybe you'll get the ER doctor and like one other person that comes from the ER to that situation. But generally speaking, that doctor arrives, takes over the scene, and knows nobody else there, and then disappears afterwards. But what you're describing is really interesting. So it's sort of a third model. It's sort of a semi-swarm team, which is that you all come with a, a unit, and that unit knows each other and trains together for this purpose. And then you interface with staff that maybe you know, maybe you don't. And then you see part of your mission as not only stabilizing the patient, but educating and improving all of the staff around you. That's actually really cool and not something that's come up before on the podcast, that particular model of doing it. How conscious was that? How, when you guys designed that, or I don't know if that predated you or not, but when you all designed that and when you teach that, how conscious is that semi-swarm model, or hopefully insert better word than semi-swarm model here, like, like how much do you think about that? Uh, it's interesting that you asked that question. It does predate me. So my um, mentor, uh, Dr. Dan Howes, uh, who is probably about... I want to say 15 to 20 years my senior. Um, he's the head of our critical care uh, unit. Um, he, uh, he played a pivotal role in introducing the race team to, to our hospital. Um, but in, in Ontario anyway, uh, race teams and race team variants, critical care response teams are, um, are quite common. But of course, every hospital does it little bit differently. In some hospitals, it's uh, owned completely by uh, critical care and a critical care response team consultation sometimes looks an awful, like, an awful lot like an ICU consultation. In our center, it's a little bit different than that because we do have physicians who work both in the ICU but also um, uh, in the emergency department. And so there's a, a little bit, it's a, maybe a little bit Maybe it's a bit different than, than some other models, but not having worked in the United States myself and not having worked on a critical care response team at other hospitals, I can't speak, you know, I can't tell you precisely how it's done, but, um, but certainly in our model, uh, we, we try to be conscious of all of the issues that, that you mentioned. Uh, and we see ourselves both as, um, as resuscitationists primarily, but of course also as uh, individuals with a certain amount of expertise 
that we want to share that we want to we want to educate our young house staff to kind of make them more confident in, in their roles, uh, to provide the support they need. Um, and, uh, you know, the feedback we've had has been uniformly positive uh, from that model. Hmm. So, take, so take me a little bit deeper into that. So, so you're on the urology floor, the patient's in flash pulmonary edema. You all decide that you're able to stabilize the patient, um, you know, mostly with a little bit of BiPAP. Uh, you don't need to intubate the person. Their vitals start improving, and you're you're getting ready to do. You know the way that we would do it is to say, okay, you know, code four, ER team clear. We go back to our normal work. What do you do right then? How how do you use that moment? Is it is it right then? Do you do after action reports uh, like a week later, or, or what's your setup for that? Do you mean from an education perspective? Right, right, right. So so your second mission, or or whatever you want to call it, in terms of your ability to 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 raise all of the ships around you. Yeah, so I mean, again, it's going to be different from faculty to faculty, but my approach is always to, to do the in-the-moment teaching. Uh, so I'll you know, provide suggestions as we go, but when, it's, when the situation is all done and the patient's been stabilized, we've decided if they're staying you know, where they are, if they're moving in step-down uh, ICU, at that point, I, take, I specifically spend my time with the resident who's been kind of leading uh, and I and I spend a few minutes talking about oh you know here are the options for flash pulmonary edema you know uh, and I talk about recognition a lot um, and uh, we talk a bit about communication. One of the typical things that I find is I'll arrive to a situation like that where things are uh, when anxieties are a little bit high, the patient's not doing well, and oftentimes uh, a very well-meaning nurse or very well-meaning junior resident will start to give me a long story about what's been happening with this patient. You know, this patient is post-op day 11 for this, and you know, this is how their OR went. You know, you're smiling because you've been there, right? Um, right. Yeah. And, uh, and there's lots of great details, but you know, there's only a few things I want to know, right? I want to know that the patient was, you know, hypoxic over the last, you know, couple hours was really hypertensive, you know, woke up kind of anxious. Um, and, uh, and really that's, that's all I really need to know. And then I'll look at the vital signs and, uh, and, uh, and essentially what we do there is this concurrent, uh, diagnostic and management plan. Right. And of course, as you know, in medical school, you're taught to, you know, introduce yourself to the patient and then, uh, you know, get a history. And then after your history is done, Think about your past medical history and the allergies and the medications and you get the vital signs and then you examine the patient and you brainstorm a differential diagnosis and then you of course you go ahead and order a few tests and the tests come back and then you analyze the results and then you decide what you want to do you call this you know pulmonary edema and then these are your treatments right but in the real world that's not practical and not safe uh, we take a kind of a uh, a non-linear concurrent approach to this. And so after many of these cases, I'll, I'll talk to the resident and I'll say, okay, well, let, let's just think about the things that are kind of most relevant here. Well, what's most relevant is the patient is in respiratory distress, you know, their stats are kind of crummy, their blood pressure is up. Um, that's really all we need to know in order to do the first few things, right? So when you see a patient like this or any sick patient, here are the three or four things that you always need to do that are always useful. Uh, number one, it's always called the racing. Uh, and then number two, it's, you know, let's put some BiPAP on this patient. Let's make sure we have IVs. Let's make sure we have a good set of vital signs. Let's make sure we have the help we need in the room. Um, and once you have that, I mean, you've dealt with, you know, the first few minutes of any scenario. Um, and then you can start to hone things down. And so uh, I spent a lot of time talking about uh, recognition and initial approach and you know we can get into that you know there's a whole science of recognition prime decision making in system one system two and um, uh, 
yeah, there you go, Gary Klein. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, you, yeah, you're, you're all over it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, so we talk about that because I think it's, it's, it's quite relevant. And anyway, I can, I can, I can talk forever. Maybe I'll stop now and let you. Yeah. Let's, it. let's, let's fracture that into a couple of different places. So, for, for since you all can't see us at the moment, I just held up a book called Sources of Power by Gary Klein, which is sort of uh, one of the leaders of the recognition prime decision model. Uh, decision-making model of the universe, which talks about how experts make decisions. And I, I hope we're going to dig into that in just a minute too. But man, there, there's so many little things in that. And first off, I wish we could have seen my heart rate as you were describing the long list of things that a, a medical student is supposed to do for a patient in an emergency, because it probably just would have been more and more up. And I'm getting more antsy as I'm watching this person take a really detailed, slow history, because there really are two gears, right? There's the gear of like the slow diagnostician, and then there's the gear of emergency. And that really creates a different need for basically everything, like how you process and gather information, how you decide things, the risk benefit ratios of things, your priors from a Bayesian statistical point of view, basically everything has to change. And so maybe that's a great place to start to start the next phase of this conversation, which is that you have to understand in some sense that you are actually in an emergency. You have to realize, okay, now I need to put on my second brain or whatever you want to call it. So how do you do that? How do you recognize that you're in an emergency how do experts do it differently than beginners? How do we train people to do that? How did you learn how to do that? I don't know, man. Pick pick one of those and run with it. Let's see what let's see what we can build. Yeah, sure. So maybe I'll just start talking. I mean, I think the first thing is you have to understand that you know perfection can be the enemy of good, mm. um, and and I think that is is really important. And sometimes when we get into our rabbit holes and into our kind of silos of expertise, we can we can really you know. You know, another analogy and metaphor: lose the forest through the trees, right? Um, I think you need to understand when you're in an, an acute emergency, um, and then, like you said, change gears, right? So if that patient is not looking well to you, uh, you need to listen to that, right? And there's some good research that suggests, and, and also just clinical experience. The first thing that you do when you walk into a patient room is to see if that person looks sick or not sick, um, and people can, learners develop that relatively early, I think, um, not right away, but within the first year of residency, people, you know, residents can tell us it looks like death or not. And I think if you see, if you're recognizing that, I think you need to listen to that and then put your emergency hat on. Um, and then, you know, just focus on, you know, a couple of things that you need to know. You know, the classic thing again is, you know, your cardiac arrest patient, right? All I want to know when that patient rolls through the door with EMS is, you know, how long have they been down and what has their rhythm been? Really nothing else matters in the first five, 10 minutes of that case, mm -hmm. most of the time. Um, yeah. But recognizing that is crucially important, right? Recognizing when you're in a situation where you don't need information, you just need one piece and then action versus I'm in a situation where I need to gather lots of information is in and of itself a skill, I think. It, it is a skill and it's something that we're all taught and learned through experience. And then I've, I've struggled with this idea of whether or not that's something that we can teach earlier or not, or whether that just has to come with time, right? I'll give you another example. In some of our simulation work, um, we, we create a, a case where a patient has a ruptured uh, AAA and abdominal aortic aneurysm. And um, it's, there, there's no diagnostic dilemma. It's really obvious this person is hypotensive, has a history of this AAA, and they're bleeding to death intraabdominally as a result, or retroperitoneally as a result of this uh, aorta. And um, one of the really interesting things that we found is that junior learners will 
try to take all the information they're given in the simulation because they think they need to use it, uh, whereas experts have a bit of a different approach. So that junior learner, for example, will get all of the typical pieces of information that the, C, that the more expert will. So for example, you know, they'll come in, they'll get their vital signs, they get a list of medications and allergies, whatever. And oftentimes in the workup of a very sick patient, an ECG is done very early on before we know what's going on with the patient at our center. And so what we did is we gave participants the ECG from this patient within you know, 30 seconds of them arriving. And it's fascinating to watch what happens in the simulation. And this is exactly what happens in the real world. The junior resident takes the ECG and sees a bunch of ST depression everywhere and thinks, okay, well, this might be acute coronary syndrome and I need to act on this. And they're spending some time analyzing this. And while they're analyzing, things are going on. Blood pressures are coming down and heart rates are going up and the patient is looking worse and worse. Uh, the team has questions, but again, that person is focused on the ECG. Uh, whereas the more expert, you know, whether or not he or she looks at the ECGs a bit irrelevant because they've already identified what's going on. You know, the ST depression is not ACS. It's, of course, demand ischemia, but it, it, it makes no difference in this case. The ECG is not relevant. So they politely say, thank you very much for the ECG. They put it aside and then they go ahead and call the vascular surgeon, right? Um, so can you teach that? I think you can teach it, but of course, you know, th that may be different in another scenario, right? So if you have a slightly different simulation, actually that ECG is the most important thing. Um, so, you know, I think it, it takes a bit of expertise and experience to develop that. I think we need to teach junior learners that it's okay to deviate from what they've been taught. But I think you need to spend some time in an emergency department um, and thinking about your approach to patients before you can confidently disregard information. We talk about information reduction and you know, that maybe that's something you and I can talk about in a little bit, um, but you need to have a certain amount of expertise before you can rely on that because you may miss certain things. Hmm. Um, it sounds like a great case, like an absolutely great case. And that metric of time to discard of the, of the EKG is a fascinating metric to, to measure for people, um, which, which maybe gets into an interesting idea of like, how do you actually measure expertise? Great question. Uh, I think it, it depends on what domain you're talking about. So there are certain domains where it's a lot easier to measure expertise and others where it's very difficult. So in our world, uh, I think you and I both know a good resuscitationist when we see one. Mm -hmm. But it's really difficult for us to describe what makes that person good, to put it into words. And similarly, for the actual uh, physician, him or herself, it is a bit tough to explain what makes them good and how they've changed over time. Unless you've done a lot of introspection and a lot of reflection and reading about this, it's not obvious. Um, whereas in a game like chess, where each board, every, every position on the board has a best move associated with it, right? You can, you can measure what somebody does and compare it to that best move in a readily quantifiable way. And that's easy to do. So I think it depends on your, uh, on your domain. So how do, how do you do it in resuscitation medicine? Uh, we've struggled with this uh, over the years, but we've, we've come up with a couple of solutions and we've published a few papers on this, but we think the best way to look at this is through cognitive task analysis. Essentially what that means is getting someone to narrate his or her thoughts um, and looking at what their actions are in a, in a busy resuscitation case. Now, it's not practical to do that uh, in the moment because there's a patient's 
life at stake. And so you can't really say, well, I want you to kind of go through all your thoughts while you're resuscitating this patient. That would be completely unethical. But what you can do is you can, uh, one, videotape, and two, better yet, what we've done uh, is to put eye tracking glasses on uh, physicians uh, that record audio, video, and also pupil position in real time. And you can show the video to the physicians afterwards and say, okay, now we're relaxed, the case is over, let's delve into this. All right, so I noticed that you were looking at the patient's vital signs and then you had actions A, B, and C. You know, why is that? Um, what were you thinking here? What was going through your mind? Um, and then we can, there's a whole bunch of other actions we can look at as well uh, and, and interview, interview them and kind of try to really hone in on the, the, the kind of the reasons behind the actions. And when you do that, you find really interesting things and you can, and you can qualitatively and to some degree quantitatively uh, look at the differences between experts and novices based on that cognitive task analysis. And, and the reason that's important, I think, is because if you have a fairly straightforward resuscitation and the outcome is the same, so the patient becomes intubated at the end, let's say, let's say your end point is intubation. If it was an easy intubation, then both the fairly junior person and the, and the expert person will both have checked that box. You know, patient intubated, first pass, great. Um, but if you actually interview and try to get into the, into the thinking process behind that expert and that novice, you may, may see something different. You may see that the novice thought about the plan, successfully went through the plan, intubated the patient, great, but there wasn't a lot of deeper thinking Un underneath that, right? So maybe the expert thought of that exact same plan, but had a plan B and a plan C ready for when plan A fails, because plan A, though it's going to work 95% of the time, you know, for the 5% of the time that it's not going to work, I don't want to be thinking of my plan B at that point. I want to have already thought of what plan B is going to be. Um, and the only way to uncover that is to delve into, you know, the thought process, because tons of this stuff is under the surface. And that's why it's, you know, OSCE checklists in, in simulation um, uh, cases have some value, but they only tell you about competence and kind of that first stage of expertise. If you really want to get into the nitty gritty, um, you've got to figure out what people are thinking because they're not, they're not verbalizing all of these important thoughts. Hmm. And how aware of that do you think that either you or we are in general when we're doing resuscitations? I mean, I, you know, if you asked me, I guess what I'm saying is I can sometimes be able to narrate my thoughts. And sometimes afterwards, I imagine I'd have trouble with that because even below the level of my thought is my sort of unconscious thought, my unconscious pattern matching systems, which either systems one or, you know, recognition, prime decision-making, whatever you want to call it. Some of which are by definition, not really touchable from, from my conscious thought. Um, is there is there signal in that or is most of what we're looking at sort of in the in the I don't know the intermediate basement level so I think some of it I, I think most of it is retrievable I think you're mm -hmm. right some of it may not be and I think as expertise you know as you get further to the right on the expertise spectrum mm -hmm. um, experts do to some degree develop what's called an expert blind spot mm -hmm. which is a bit you know self-explanatory in the sense that uh, you may not be aware of all the great things you're doing because it's so obvious to you, right? Um, but, uh, but I think with a cognitive task analysis that's done by a trained interviewer who is also an emergency physician in this case, who has some training in 
in how to properly do a, a cognitive task analysis, I, I think you can dig those things out because I, and especially with eye tracking, when, when I can watch what someone's eye patterns are during a case, you know, I've been there. So, you know, though I may not know exactly what they're thinking, I'll at least know that they've done something interesting that I need to ask them about. Um, whereas if you don't have that training, I think it becomes a little more difficult. So I think having that congruency between the interviewer and the interviewee is important. All right. So maybe this is a good time to shift gears really slightly. And, and we've been dancing around for a while, this concept of cognitive load. So, so what is cognitive load? How do we measure it? What do we do about it? And, and what do people listening to this podcast need to know about it? Yeah. So cognitive load essentially is the amount of your working memory that you're using to accomplish a task. That's how I think of cognitive load. Um, and cognitive load theory itself uh, is a theory of, of education. It's an educational psychology theory that um, some psychology giants created uh, about uh, 30 years ago now in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and uh, so these three guys, John Sweller, Jeroen van Marienborg, and Fred Pass were some of the first to kind of put this together, John Sweller being the pioneer. Um, and uh, essentially, it's a, a theory of education where um, if we understand the way our working memory works and understanding the limitations of our working memory, we can create educational interventions that optimize certain aspects of it and minimize others. And so what I mean by that is there's an intrinsic cognitive load that's associated with learning a task and that's called the element interactivity or essentially the difficulty of the task to be learned. Then there are extraneous uh, bits of cognitive load Essentially, what that refers to are suboptimal uh, information presentation techniques. So, if you have uh, a, a you know a suboptimal teacher or teacher or teaching uh, technique that doesn't um, that essentially is uh, is confusing, let's say, uh, that's going to lead to poor learning, uh, and and those things are additive. And so the more the more difficult the situation is and the, the worse way that it's presented, you know, that's going to that's going to increase cognitive load. And if you get to a certain point, you're going to reach a state of cognitive overload where you're not going to learn anything from that teaching intervention. And that's cognitive load theory in a, in a nutshell when it comes to uh, education. And that's how cognitive load theory ha was born and how it's been applied most of the time. But recently we've been thinking about that in our world and applying it to clinical medicine um, because I think there's there are some direct parallels that can be made between cognitive load theory as an as an educational modality as well as cognitive load theory in the real world and I think that's where it gets exciting okay so so let's translate that theoretical concept to our real world emergency department so we're we're in um, an emergency department we have a sick patient in front of us let's make it for you know fun in quotes, a COVID patient who's really having a lot of trouble breathing. And we're, we're sort of making a decision about, do we need to be aggressive and intubate this person? Or, or is there sort of other paths we can take? And there's um, a lot involved in that decision. But, but help me map that, what you just said about cognitive load theory in education into this situation, which, which I'm standing in front of. Okay, great question. So um, in a complicated situation like that, there are there's a lot of intrinsic cognitive load, first of all, 
because, and that's for everybody. That's not just for novices who maybe don't have a lot of experience with this, but now for experts, these are, these are now, this is a novel situation where, you know, though we all know how to intubate and uh, how to take care of sick patients, there's, there's a bit of added complexity here, right? So even the decision-making is a bit different, right? So am I going to, in, you know, for the same oxygen saturation and work of breathing where I would have intubated somebody before, do I do it now? It's not totally clear. Maybe, maybe not, right? Um, and if I'm, if I'm going to do it, I'm not going to do it in the way that I've always done it. There's going to be a protected intubation, right? Um, so there's some, there's some intrinsic elements of that medical encounter that are more difficult. So your intrinsic cognitive load is going to be higher because of the intrinsic nature of the medical problem that you're faced with. So if working memory is a box, your intrinsic cognitive load for your non-COVID intubation is, you know, this big, so small, and now it's going to be a little bit bigger. And then there's a box for extraneous cognitive load, right? So extraneous cognitive load uh, has to do with some of the distractors, right? So some of this has to do with the fact that, um, you know, maybe there's an overhead page about a code blue, uh, for a patient who's uh, not in the emergency department, but in our shop, uh, we hear these overhead code blues in the eMERGE as well for whatever crazy reason. Uh, but that's now extraneous load. That's a distraction that's not relevant for what you're doing in the moment. And that's also taking part of your working memory because you're processing that stimulus and you're choosing to ignore it. Um, and then of course, there is the emotional response, the stress and the uncertainty that this COVID patient uh, instills in you as a physician and in your team as well. Because there is added stress there because now there's team safety that we're thinking about and, um, and all of the issues related to that. So then it's interesting, you know, do those issues, those effective um, uh, concerns that I just mentioned, that stress, that uncertainty, you know, is that extraneous? Is that a distraction? Or is it intrinsic to the actual case itself? And what we're finding and what our new theoretical model suggests is that that is probably intrinsic to the case. It's not really a distraction, though you need to, you know, be in your PPE, though you're hot, uh, you know, in your gown and your N95 and in your visor, that is now part of the new medical problem, right? That is, that is associated with that. If you, if you wanted to create a simulation to train your team, what you should do is put your team in that PPE so they know what it feels like. Those, those, those issues that you might think are distractors are actually part of the case. They're now, now a part of, of, of intubating this patient, whereas they wouldn't be for this same patient a year and a half ago. So I think it's important to be able to compartmentalize what is intrinsic to the case and what is extraneous, because you can't, though you want to minimize extraneous um, distractions and you don't necessarily want to train for those, you never want to minimize uh, kind of the stress and the heat and the anxiety of, of being the physician in charge of a case like this, you want to simulate that. You want to show people what it's like. You want to teach the mitigation strategies to deal with those kind of additional strains on their working memory. So that's where I think it's important to take the theoretical model and to apply it to the real world so that you can make systems changes. Hmm. I'm thinking about, I think it was episode, I don't know, 11 or something with Andrew Ayer, who's a faculty member at Brigham and Women's and uh, formerly worked with the Stratus Center for Simulation in Boston. 
and talks a lot about the idea of setting, of consciously setting the signal to noise ratio in a particular simulation case. So he's like, here's what I want people to try to accomplish. And then depending on their level, I'm gonna add noise on top of that in one form or another, either physical, actually he'll play noise in the background, or sort of the idea of getting uh, extraneous pieces of information or screaming family members or something like that. And, and it's an interesting thing to think through, both in terms of how do we design optimal training that allows people to slowly ramp up their, their capacity to handle that versus what systems do we have in place like right now that'll allow us to handle that if you or I were dropped into that situation tomorrow. And I just want to make sort of one thing slightly, slightly that is implicit, slightly explicit to make sure I understand this. So the way, the way you're describing that things that are intrinsic cognitive load are parts of the situation that we cannot change and we cannot necessarily, well, actually I'll ask, can we touch those? Can I change the intrinsic cognitive load of a situation? Or only can I change the extrinsic cognitive load? So you you can change intrinsic cognitive load if you're better prepared, if you're smarter, uh, we'll say, if you've done your reading, and if you're more expert, right? So as expertise develops, as you practice more and more of a situation like that, whether it's in simulation, in the real world, or both, you can start to decrease the amount of working memory that's dedicated to intrinsic cognitive load because the case becomes easier to you, right? Um, so there, you know, we can go into the theory, but essentially it just becomes easier because you've done it before, you've thought about it before, right? Um, the extraneous factors are things that you should be able to, um, to diminish, it, you know, if you had power over everything, if you had power over muting, you know, the speaker that's right above you know, where I'm standing in my resuscitation bay that's telling me about the code blue on the ninth floor of the hospital that I don't care about, you know, that's something that if you had the power to change that, that experience cognitive is gone, right? So, so that is something you can change and you should be able to change. Then there's other parts of extraneous cognitive load that you might not be able to change, right? Maybe, you know, not as part of your current situation, you're not stressed out by that, let's say, but let's say you've just had a fight you know, with your, with your partner, or there's some kind of stressful event at home or with your kids or friends, you know, that's something that may be a bit more difficult to just turn off. To some degree, there are strategies for that as well. And, you know, some people are better able or, or not better able to do that. But, but those are, those are, those are real things as well that have an impact on your working memory to some degree as well. So the things that we can do to change the intrinsic cognitive load are things we do essentially on our days off. They're things we do before the shift. They're things we do when we're studying and practicing and training. But when we're actually in the moment of that case, they're, in that, they're sort of untouchable in that moment as opposed to the extrinsic cognitive load, which we can, we can deploy countermeasures essentially, and we can train countermeasures to deploy against certain pieces of extrinsic cognitive load. Am I getting that right? Yeah, that's, that's, that, that is correct. Yeah, that's right. Now, just to be clear, a purist would call it extraneous, not extrinsic, but it's, okay. you, you, it's the same thing. Interesting. And, and the, is that because extraneous versus extrin... I'm going to get those. I'm going to butcher both of those words right now, but is that because some of it comes from outside of me versus inside of me? Or is no, that because I think it's, it's just the terminology that was decided upon when the theory was first being written. Um, so it, Honestly, in the real world, it doesn't really matter. Uh, gotcha. The, the purist might stop you. Okay, so we have these different types of cognitive load and we need to be aware of them and to develop 
techniques that allow us to to minimize them because the more capacity we have the better able we are to uh, not only deploy our normal procedures but also to think creatively and sort of get around obstacles is is that right also yeah that's precisely right so when you think about that working memory box that has intrinsic load in it and extraneous load in it uh, if you're if intrinsic and extraneous is more than your working memory capacity, you're overloaded, you're cognitively overloaded and your performance will suffer, right? Full stop. If you're able to manage your intrinsic and your extraneous load and you have more free working memory available to you, that's when you might want, you can think a bit outside the box, you can think creatively, you could think about the patient next door, um, you can, uh, perhaps do a little bit of teaching, you know, if you've got a resident or a medical student with you, uh, maybe you can bring the family in and maybe you can spend a little bit of your brain power on communicating with the family and explaining the situation, you know, while things are still going on, you're kind of co-managing the medical care as well as some of those important, um, uh, you know, the, that relationship that you're creating with this, this family member uh, who's really worried about their loved one, you know? So those are things that you can do um, if you do have that extra cognitive capacity. And this sort of brings us in some sense, you're describing basically like the Yerkes-Dodson curve, right? The idea that like however much pressure we're under changes our, our performance in it. And no pressure we have, we're bored and we don't perform too well. And at extreme amounts of pressure and overload, we get um, what Stephen Hearns would call frazzle. Like we get in that frazzle state and we're unable to really function. And what, what's so interesting about this and, and maybe so obvious to you, I'm thinking about it a lot, but like just dissecting... Um, load into intrinsic and, and I'm going to say extrinsic again, I know that's not the right word, I'm sorry, uh, extrinsic load, that both of them push us on the curve. And to some extent, I would wonder, like, do you think they push us the same amount? Do you think they push us different amounts? It's probably nonlinear. How do we, like, knowing that, what do we do about that? Yeah, so I think there's kind of two questions, you know, is it is it linear or quadratic? And you know, there's actually, uh, it depends on how much of a how much, how much you want this to become a psychologically kind of educationally psychology, educational psychology nerdy talk. We, we can, we can get into that, but there was a recent paper that looked at whether it was linear or not. Anyway, what, probably not relevant. Um, but, um, you know, conceptually they're additive, right? So the less extraneous cognitive load, the better, and the more optimized you can, you can be, the more ready you can be for a complicated scenario and, and to, to, to deal with intrinsic cognitive load, the better, right? And and if you're not prepared, or if a situation is totally novel to you, or you're really um, stressed by the scenario, or there's a whole lot of distractors, you know, that's that's going to have an impact on your performance. And of course, then this relates to our previous discussion. There's outwardly visible performance, and then there's what's going on under the hood. So even if my outwardly visible performance is similar, if I haven't prepared as well for contingencies then I'm not doing as good of a job as a team leader, even if nobody else knows it except me. That's for sure. I'm, I'm flashing back to a couple of cases I've had recently where I realized, hey, I'm, there's a lot of, this feels uncomfortable to me. I am aware that I'm not performing in my sort of normal smooth, my smooth set. And in those instances, I think deploying countermeasures against this external or extrinsic or and I'm sorry, I'll learn that word Strangious. eventually. Okay. Extraneous uh, cognitive load becomes even more important. So. So tell me about that. So what are countermeasures? What, are, what can we deploy in that situation to minimize that load? 
So yeah, good question again. Um, so there's there are certain things that just happen with time, right? So there's two main things uh, that, that I think of those. So the first is um, essentially schema construction and automation, right? So when you were a medical student, when I was a medical student and we learned about congestive heart failure, going back to our previous example, uh, and pulmonary edema, you know, we would think about things like, uh, you know, uh, crackles on auscultation, uh, high JVP, we would, uh, you know, think about hypoxia. We knew these people were on diuretics and uh, maybe they had an echo that showed some poor cardiac contractility. You know, each of these was a, a discrete element in our working memory. And very quickly, by adding all those things up, we became a bit overwhelmed. We couldn't really remember what the treatment was or um, you know, we knew something about diuretics and positive pressure, but how to bring that all together was a bit complicated. But now that you've been doing this job for, for a while, the way you probably think about CHF and pulmonary edema is CHF presentation and CHF management, right? And that's it. And then so you've got a lot of other open areas in your working memory to do other things. Uh, now I've lost track of my thought here, Dan, where was I going with this? Uh, schema and automation. Oh, there we go. Schema automation. Exactly. So you've essentially you've created a schema for what CHF and pulmonary edema looks like. You've automated it. So it takes less of your cognitive load. So that's a way of decreasing intrinsic cognitive load with time. So that is experience. That is studying. That is taking care of patients with these issues, right? So that happens. And the other thing that happens uh, with respect to your extraneous cognitive load is information reduction. I touched upon this earlier on. And essentially what that is, is what I described with the ECG example and the uh, AAA rupture. So that information is extraneous to me at the time because I know that this is a patient who needs an operation for their aorta. So I know what to disregard. I know what to actively deprioritize, what is safe to actively deprioritize and what I need to actually prioritize. And by deprioritizing irrelevant stimuli, I again have more working memory because I've decreased the amount of extraneous cognitive load. So that's, that's the evolution over time, right? So that happens to all of us as we go from medical student to resident to attending and then senior attending. So that's gonna happen hopefully. Um, for you know, some people who self-reflect a little bit, who avoid what Anders Ericsson would call arrested development, get better at, at that than others, whereas others are competent but they never become true experts and that's fine too. Um, but that is, that's a natural process that maybe we can intervene on and, and help educate to speed up to some degree, but probably most of it is just going to happen with time and there's nothing we can do about it. So that's kind of the, that's, that's what's going to happen over time, but you're asking, you know, what are some practical strategies that you can change, you know, tomorrow that's more difficult, right? Mm -hmm. So there are certain things that you can change if you sit on committees and you can talk to people who have power, uh, when it comes to you know, turning off that speaker in the, in the resuscitation bay. Um, some other departments use some really great strategies where not specifically for resuscitation, but just in emergency medicine in general, where they have, um, you know, uh, when the physician is wearing a red hat or whatever, a purple hat, that person is not to be interrupted because let's say they are sure. either charting or they're ordering investigations or whatever they're doing. And that way, you know, you, maybe you can decrease that extraneous load. In other uh, hospitals, you know, they, they'll have a, a specific computer terminal uh, that maybe is kind of walled off in some way. So the nurses and the residents and the other attending physicians know that when that person is in that room, they are not to be interrupted unless there is a true, you know, true in quotation marks, medical emergency where they need to be pulled away. So those are 
Those are practical ways where you can decrease extraneous cognitive load tomorrow on your shift. But again, that's, that's not just you. That has to be you and your group of, uh, of staff. There, there needs to be some education that goes, goes with that. But those are ways to, to decrease that load to make yourself a better performer under stress. Yeah, so, so in some sense, the sterile cockpit rule is what you're describing. Yeah, right? exactly. Right, the idea that, that in aviation, when you're below a certain height, the only communication is mission-centric communication about either taking off or landing the plane. And there's a great piece from um, uh, MCRIT, I think it is, talking about the sterile cockpit in terms of intubation and creating a time and space where you say, all right, team, like we are now in sterile cockpit, go. And that sort of allows the whole team to understand that this is a time when I'm going to be focused only on this one thing and try to minimize that that everything else yeah, going on around you. No, you're right, Dan. And um, you know, as you say that, I just am remembering a case I had last week where we were intubating a patient on the race team again uh, on the floor. And I was at the foot of the bed and the anesthesia resident was at the head of the bed. And uh, you know, the drugs were pushed, you know, the induction agent, the paralytic. And uh, and I could still hear the same chatter that was going on, you know, and, and it's no fault of the people who were talking, you know, they maybe weren't aware of, of what was going on. And uh, a technique that I use, I mean, I don't use sterile cockpit, uh, I use we're under 10,000 feet, and I'm not the first person to use that uh, term, but for, in, for people who maybe aren't familiar with the science, people generally know what that means. You know, we're under 10,000 feet, you know, the only person who is going to be speaking is the anesthesia resident for the next you know, three minutes. That seems to work for me. Um, you know, you could have your own version of that, but that's a way for me to help decrease the extraneous cognitive load on the anesthesiologist who is intubating, right? So that's a way for me as a leader, even though I'm hands off, to create an environment that's set up for success. Yeah, and that, that's such a great point, which is that like understanding the more people in the room that understand cognitive load theory and how it works, the better able we are to decrease the load on the, on the operator of the moment. And I think that that's a really crucial thing that we can intervene on is to teach more and more people about this, right? So if everybody's proactively looking for high cognitive load situations and realizing like, hey, okay, I need to, I need to make sure that I'm not going to contribute to this load right now, um, the better. But also the role of an, an individual leader to say, okay, this is what we're doing now, like quiet, please. A better way to say that, of course, but but I think that's really that's really important. Um, yeah, and I think then you know the other thing that goes with that is social capital, and you know, trying to make sure that you are only uh, employing a vertical leadership style, which is what we're sort of discussing here, when it's absolutely necessary, is is really important because if you're always a vertical leader. Um, that that becomes problematic. You know, it's, a, it's the boy who cried wolf, right? So when it actually matters and you're continuing to be a vertical leader, you know, people aren't going to take it as seriously. Whereas if you're more of a horizontal leader, most of the time when it's appropriate to do so, for the times that you have to become a vertical leader, people will listen, pay attention, because they know that this is, this is a different scenario. To me, this goes back to that same book by Marquette about turn the ship around, where he talked a lot about changing from a leader follow model to a leader leader motto. And when they did the final evaluation of his of his submarine, uh, what they said was essentially like your team attempted to make the same number of mistakes as all other teams did. However, you had systems in place of horizontal leadership and everybody knowing the shared mental model of what you're trying to do that prevented those mistakes from actually being carried out. Which I thought was a really fascinating way to put that. Like 
because in some sense, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about sharing the mental model of what's happening with the entire room and making sure everybody's on board and understands the, the details of what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so much to, so much to dig into there. We're, we're going to have to, we're going to have to do another, another like deep dive into some of this, like, like opening up more of these boxes and looking at the machinery a little bit. I think I, I'm learning a ton from this, um, but we're coming up amazingly to the end, end of an hour already. And, so I, I want to be mindful of, of our time here and, and close us out with a, with a challenge. So what is your challenge to people listening to this? What is something that they can be working on this week to, to get better and to, to bend all the curve for their team? Well, I think, you know, I, like you said, you can, you, can, you can do lots of different uh, kind of cool things with, with this work. I think, of course, I'm biased. But, you know, one, one practical thing that I think everybody can get behind is decreasing extraneous load on yourself and on your team. Um, you know, if you're in a shop like mine, so my major annoyance, and I, and I have to say I'm guilty that I haven't followed through on trying to get rid of this, but the, the overhead pages for codes in other areas of the hospital that nobody in the emergency department is supposed to attend to, uh, you know, when, when that message comes on the loudspeaker, you know, during an intubation, let's say, uh, that that is something that it needs to go uh and that is something that i'm going to work on moving forward so you know you asked for my challenge to others well that's my challenge to myself but i'm sure others listening will find you know similar uh issues uh, at their shops uh when it comes to decreasing extraneous load uh you know maybe it's that sterile cockpit model when when you're charting or thinking or ordering specific tests maybe nobody interrupts you because you're wearing a certain colored hat or you're at a at a specific computer terminal uh you know so so the challenge would be you know try to try to find one thing where you can can decrease the extraneous load on yourself and on your team and and try try to follow up with the people who can who can make actionable change awesome Adam, thank you so much. I learned a ton from this conversation and just total joy to have you on the podcast. Thank you. You're welcome, Dan. Thanks for inviting me along. Okay, folks, that brings us to the end of this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found something useful that you can use next time you find yourself in an emergency or a crisis. Again, if you want to dig deeper into a lot of the concepts that we covered here, sign up for the Emergency Mind newsletter, Knowledge Under Pressure. It is free and it is awesome. You can join by going to www.emergencymind.com slash sign up. Also, as a reminder, our mission here at the Emergency Mind is to dig into lessons around applying knowledge under pressure, not to provide medical advice. Our opinions, as expressed on this podcast or elsewhere, are our own and not necessarily those of our employers or the hospitals at which we work. So keep up the good work, keep training, and good luck out there.